Now, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Today, we are going to continue to consider the goodness of God's providence in the life of Joseph and in the lives of all of God's covenant people. And we're going to read the entirety of this chapter together. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief, cup, or the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Peniah and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put it in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God had made him fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. 
Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Church, the main idea for our message this morning is this. Neither pain nor prosperity can stop the fruit of God's providence. Neither pain nor prosperity can stop the fruit of God's providence. And I believe that this is a timely word for us today because I believe that earthly pain is real. And I also know that earthly prosperity, particularly here in America, is also very real. And friends, as I began to prepare this message on Tuesday morning, I had a, I had a sense that I believe was from the Holy Spirit. I, I had an impression that God wanted to minister to all of us today, but that he wanted to care for two groups of people in a particular way. I believe that God is wanting to speak directly, first of all, to those who are struggling with severe anxiety about the future and who have been having more panic attacks and fearful dreams throughout the night about the future in recent days. And I believe that God wants to comfort you with the truth of his providence today. Second of all, I believe that God is calling out to those who are very prosperous in life. You, you are succeeding in all the ways. Things, things are great for you right now. You have all the earthly prosperity that you could ask for, but yet you are feeling empty inside and without clear purpose and direction. Specifically, you see a lack of godly fruit in your life. You consider yourself a Christian, but you have begun to wonder whether being a Christian is even worth it because you haven't seen any significant change to who you are. And so, to all of us, but to these two groups in particular, I believe that the Lord wants to remind us from Genesis 41 today, neither pain nor prosperity can stop the fruit of God's providence. We have two points this morning. Point number one, the famine of prosperity. And point number two, the fruit of providence. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, the famine of prosperity. What are we supposed to learn from Genesis 41. Well, what are we supposed to learn from Joseph's very rapid rise to power here? It would seem if you read this quickly or if you listen to many sermons that are preached about it, it would seem that this text shows us how God always vindicates his people from trial and raises them up to positions of power and position and to prosperity in this world. And that's not entirely wrong. God certainly is working on Joseph's behalf. But the primary application of this chapter today is not that we should just trust God like Joseph did and then our day of prominence and vindication in this world will certainly come. No, that's not the point of this text. As much as God seems to bless and to give favor to Joseph in this text, Genesis 41 is not the culmination of the story. This is not the goal. Th things Certainly turn around for Joseph to some degree. Things do improve. Genesis 41 is a significant transition point in the story. But church, don't be fooled here. The prosperity of Joseph is not what we should focus on. And we know that the prosperity of Joseph is not the focus point by just taking a minute to pause and to consider the whole story of Genesis again together. Church, specifically, we should stop and consider Genesis chapter 12. We need to have Genesis 12 always in our minds as we read the book of Genesis. That moment in chapter 12 when God made extraordinary promises to Abraham and to his family. He said that he would make him into a great nation. 
He said that he would multiply him beyond his comprehension. If you remember in Genesis 15, he tells Abraham that he will have more descendants than he could even count and more than the stars in the heavens. In Genesis 22, he promises that Abraham will have his descendants more numerous than the grains of sand by the seashore. And we also see in those promises that God promises to give Abraham descendants, to give Abraham's descendants a land to live in a place to call home, the land of Canaan, the promised land. And folks, ever since Genesis chapter 12, we've been waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And we've seen God remain faithful. We've seen God preserve and, and protect his purposes for his people. But we have not seen the culmination of his word to them, have we? We have not seen the full fulfillment of his promises. And so, If we have all of that in mind this morning, then it is almost impossible to look at Genesis chapter 41 in only a positive way. If you read Genesis 41 in light of Genesis chapter 12, you quickly realize that this can't be the culmination or the goal of the story. Why? Well, because Joseph, though he seems to prosper, is technically still a slave. Yes, he is now the the second most powerful person in Egypt, but he's not free He's not living in Canaan as God said that he would. He's not free to worship God however he wants to. Look at verse 42. In verse 42, we see Pharaoh clothed Joseph in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And that seems like a really good thing, and it it is a really good thing. But think about the contrast of this moment when Pharaoh clothes Joseph and back to chapter 37 when Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. Colors. But both of these garments are garments of honor and position, and we can see God's favor in them both. But we should not miss the fact that at this point in the story, Joseph is being honored not by Jacob, his own father, not by a member of God's covenant family, but Joseph is being honored by the king of Egypt, who really, according to the whole narrative of Genesis, is the enemy of God's people. Clearly, this this can't be the end or the goal of the story. Also, consider the fact that Joseph begins to look in appearance a lot like an Egyptian, right? A new identity is being forced upon him. In verse 14, when he is called up out of prison, it says that he shaves before he goes into Pharaoh. Egyptians were known to shave their faces while the Hebrews grew out large beards. And so he is made to look like an Egyptian. And then think about the robes that he wears. They're Egyptian robes. Think about the wife that is given to him. Think about the Egyptian name that Pharaoh assigns to him. Folks, up until this point in Genesis, God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the only one who has given new names to people. God, if you remember, changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah and Jacob's name to Israel. And those names have significant and covenantal meaning behind them. But, but here... Pharaoh, a a pagan king, renames Joseph and gives him an Egyptian name. A false identity is is being forced upon him. Things clearly are not as they should be. The the text does not critique Joseph for these things because he did not go down to Egypt willingly. No, he went down as a slave. And so it would seem like these things are forced upon him. But these things should still stand out to us as not being good. As much as Joseph prospers here, and he does, as powerful as he becomes, 
This prosperity and this power is not what he is ultimately living for, nor, church, should it be what we ultimately live for. And we know that this is not what we should live for by noticing Joseph's words in verse 52. When he names his second son Ephraim, Ephraim means, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph does not call Egypt his home. He knows that he's become fruitful by God's grace, but he doesn't allow that fruitfulness to make him comfortable with being a foreigner in this land. Egypt is still his land of affliction. Friends, all of this speaks to the fact that life in this world, apart from the Lord, apart from his grace, and apart from trust in his providence, all of it, Whether our lives are marked by pain or by earthly prosperity, all of it is bad if it does not include or involve the Lord himself. Even the greatest positions of power and prosperity are nothing but bondage. They're nothing but slavery if they are experienced without God himself. You know, recently I I watched the movie Unbroken again. If you've never read the book or watched the movie Unbroken, I highly recommend them both. It is the crazy story of, of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was an Olympic runner, very famous, and he also fought in World War II as a bombardier. When, when his plane was shot down, Zamperini survived 47 days lost at sea. He was finally rescued, but he was rescued by the enemy, and then the enemy quickly threw him into a prison camp where he was horrifically tormented by an officer named the bird. At one point, the enemy discovers that who he is, that he's a very famous athlete known around the world. And so they wanted to use him as propaganda to convince the world that they were treating their prisoners well. And so they made an offer to Zamperini that he could leave the torture of the prison camp that he could live in a beautiful hotel, he could eat all the food that he wanted to, he could shower and have fresh clothes every day if he was just willing to speak on the radio and to tell the world that the enemy was not that bad, that they were humane and kind. And, and in the movie, there's this moment where Louis is sitting in a cafeteria surrounded by all the food that he could possibly eat, and there are pretty girls, and there are well-dressed men, and he wants in on it all. But then he realizes even if he went in, he would still be a prisoner. That he would be living a lie. And that though his life might seem to be polished, though he might seem to prosper in that place, it would not change who he was in the war. And friends, that's what we get glimmers of in our text today. No no level of promotion No no amount of power or prosperity in Egypt or in this world could change the fact that Joseph was still not where God intended him to be. And church, that's so important for us to see today because the world often wants to use prosperity and the goodness of this world, the, the fun of this world as propaganda to convince us that living in this world is satisfying and it can make us happy, that we can be happy and content in this place. Right? Don't, don't you and I often think that if, if we could just get out of prison, if we could just get out of the trial that we're going through, if we could just end the difficult time, well, then life would be better for us. And, and sometimes, church, don't we even use God and Christianity to try to, to get us to that place? 
We say things like, maybe if I'm a Christian, maybe if I try to live a good life, God's going to prosper my business. Maybe if I try to love Jesus more, he's going to heal my marriage. Maybe he will give me a relationship. If I love God, maybe I can have more friends in high school. But do you see the problem with that? To use our relationship with Jesus to only get what we want in this world is to really have no relationship with God at all. If you love Jesus in order only to prosper in this world, well, then you aren't really loving Jesus at all. You're just using Jesus to love yourself more. But that's not what we see with Joseph. Joseph loved and served the Lord for who the Lord was in himself when he was in prison dealing with attack. And Joseph loved and served the Lord even in his prosperity and power. Joseph wonderfully, he, he refuses to accept his Egyptian identity. He serves faithfully where he is, even while wearing the Egyptian clothes and, and Pharaoh's ring. But when it comes to naming his own sons, he takes the opportunity to speak of what he truly believes in. He shows that no amount of prosperity, no amount of ease in that culture could change the fact that life apart from Yahweh is a life of famine and pain. Relationship with God is the goal of Joseph's life. And that relationship can flourish for him whether he is dealing with the pain of prison or whether he is literally riding a chariot behind Pharaoh through the streets of Egypt with them shouting, bow before him. His joy and his purpose in life was not dependent upon his circumstances, whether good or bad, but upon his trust in God and in God's providence. Church, apart from the Lord, all of life in this world, whether pain or prosperity, all of it is marked by famine. None of it can satisfy you or me. None of it. None of it can satisfy the longing of our souls. Vodi Bakum says, the world is the land of our affliction. No matter how good it gets, it's all Egypt. There will never be enough gold chains, fine linen, praise, adoration, or anything else to satisfy the yearning that God has placed in us. Only his presence in the land of promise will satisfy his people. The story of Joseph reminds us to look forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The call of God through the story of Joseph, is to live for something other than this world. To not use God as a genie just to get what we want in this life, but to be satisfied in him alone and to allow his presence and his providence to lead us towards a joyful, a purposeful, a fruitful existence. So that no matter what our circumstances might be, we rest in him. Neither earthly pain nor prosperity can stop the fruit of God's providence. That brings us to our second point, point number two, the fruit of God's providence. If you remember, if you were with us last week, you remember that we considered together the doctrine of God's providence. We considered how God's providence is not just his sovereign power to control all things, but his providence is also his active and intentional and loving care to lead all things in and according to his will. And we considered last week how absolutely key God's providence is to the story of Joseph. Without God's providence, without God's holy, wise, and powerful governance of his creation, the story of Joseph is just a chaotic whirlwind of events. We don't know how it's going to end. 
It may or it may not turn out in Joseph's favor. There's no predicting what could happen. And for us, church, without the providence of God, we as God's people really have no confidence or hope or joy in life. Without his loving governance, this chaotic world is a terrifying place to live. But God's providence changes everything. God's providence does not leave our lives to just chance or happenstance. No, the providence of God guides our lives according to his perfect and loving design for us. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. Isaiah 46, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have purposed and I will do it. Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job 23, verse 13, he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. This is the very clear the very plain, the explicit teaching of God's word. The the Belgic Confession from the year 1561, when looking to define what providence is, said this, we believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. Oh, I love that. Church, nothing happens without God's orderly arrangement. Even the chaos of this morning and how late the building was open, it happened according to God's orderly arrangement. Friends, that that might be hard for you to believe. Like, really, is this possible? Is this how God truly works? But as we saw last week, this is how he works, and he has already proven it to be true. Last week we looked at Peter's words in Acts chapter 2 and we saw there that even the cross, even the crucifixion, the death of God's very own son, even that horrific event was designed and foreordained by God. It was carried out by the hands of evil and sinful men, but it was foreordained by God himself and it has brought eternal good to his people. This is the providence of God, his ability to work all things, even the greatest evils in this world, together for our good. It's amazing. Does anybody like roller coasters? Yep. I'm a big fan of roller coasters. I love the excitement of them. I love being turned all around. But one of the things I like about roller coasters, and I imagine you do too, is that when you're on a roller coaster, no matter how much your stomach turns, you're pretty sure that you're going to come back on the tracks to the ground. They've completed the roller coaster. You're not going to suddenly launch off and land somewhere unexpected. You know where you're going. You know that those tracks will come back. Can you imagine riding a roller coaster in which you really didn't know whether they had completed the project or not? That would be terrifying. Friends, God's providence make up the tracks that this world is run on. And the tracks of his providence are always moving our lives towards a good and glorious end. They will never run out. 
No, no matter how many loops or twists or falls are in your life, maybe you're going through divorce, maybe you're going through financial ruin, maybe you're going through family trials where children are, are turning away from God, maybe, maybe there's any number of trials in your life. God's providence allows you to know that the tracks of His grace, His purposes, His mercy are going to go before you and they're not going to run out. Friend, maybe you're even in a season where it feels like you're not just on a roller coaster, but you're in one of those dark roller coasters, right? Space Mountain at at Disney World. You can't even see the tracks in front of you. You have no idea where you're going to go or how it's going to turn. But you can know that the tracks of God's providence will not come to an end. It goes before you and you will not fall. God's providence enables us to know that in both the pain And in the prosperity of life, the track of God's grace is actively leading all things together for good. But friends, maybe you are thinking, maybe you've thought in the past, man, providence and sovereignty, those seem like really high doctrines. They seem like ideas that old people from ancient creeds and confessions talk about. There can't be any immediate application or implication or benefit to my life by considering those things. Church, that's not the case. The providence of God is one of the most practical doctrines that we find in all of God's word. God's sovereignty and his his purposeful governance of all things is absolutely foundational to the Christian life and, and to experiencing greater and greater joy greater and greater peace, greater and greater purpose and direction, and greater and greater fruitfulness in this life. Believing God's providence will help you as a Christian to bear more godly fruit in your Christian walk. And we can see it very clearly in the life of Joseph. We've already noticed as we study chapters 39 and 40 how it repeats the words, and the Lord was with Joseph. It says it again and again. Those words indicate that God was present and active even when Joseph was in the darkness of the pit and prison. And it's very clear that God's active and intentional presence was not just an abstract theological thought for Joseph. No knowledge of God's presence and his providence enabled Joseph to have hope, and to have peace no matter where he found himself. You know, perhaps the clearest place in Genesis that we see Joseph's theological conviction about God's sovereignty and providence, probably the clearest place is in Genesis chapter 50. It's the final chapter of the book, and it's when his brothers are fearful that Joseph is going to retaliate and kill them for having thrown him into a pit and sold him as a slave. But in response to their fears, Joseph says this. Listen to the trust and the confidence in God's providence that this displays. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it. What is that it? It's the evil that they intended, the pain that he endured. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is what it is to believe in God's providence. To know that in his sovereign and providential control of all things, he's actively, intentionally, lovingly working all things together for our good and for his glory. Even the hardest things in your life today. To believe in God's providence, church, it is to calm your fears about the future. It is to give purpose both in pain and in prosperity, and it will bring about greater fruit in your life. That's exactly what we see 
in the life of Joseph. The, the fruit of trusting in God's providence is everywhere in Joseph's life. And friend, it can be everywhere in your life as well. well one of the greatest ways to grow as a Christian man or woman, one of the greatest ways to go on to maturity as a disciple of Christ is to allow God's word to give you a very, very big view of God. To allow God's word to, to center your life around the Lord, around Yahweh, and not yourself. To allow who he is and the, the truth of his sovereignty and providence to govern your life. And listen, to govern your emotions on a daily basis. We do not serve a small God. No, we serve the sovereign and loving king of the universe. And knowing his will can change everything in your world. And so as we close, let, let's just consider some of the fruit that is born in our lives from considering the fruit in Joseph's life, from, from trusting in the providence of God. There's so many to consider. Fruit number one, God's providence produces patience. So notice the time stamp given in this chapter. Look at verse 46. It says that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh. And we know from chapter 37 that he was 17 years old when he was first sold as a slave. 13 years have gone by. 13 years of suffering. And he will remain in this foreign land for almost 14 or more years after that. Church, when you believe in God's providence, you can be patient in every trial. You can count it all joy because you know that in God's providence, he is using that trial, even if it endures for months and years and decades, to bring about good in your life. And not just for you, but for his people as well. According to James chapter 1, he is making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You may not see exactly how he's doing that today, but you can know with confidence that he is, because God's word says that he is. Fruit number two, God's providence produces courage. I love how courageous Joseph is in this text. He, he's brought out of prison, he shaves, he goes before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and instead of taking all of the credit for himself, which, for what he's about to do, trying to convince Joseph that he's powerful and he's able and useful to the kingdom, he gives all the credit to God in verse 16. Now, not only is that humble, which we'll consider in a moment, that would have been a risky thing to do before Pharaoh. Pharaoh did not believe in Joseph's God, and so to claim that his God had wisdom beyond all the, magician, the magicians of Egypt would have been a very risky thing to do. But Joseph knows. He knows that his life is not in Pharaoh's hands. It's in God's hands. And so, Christian, I wonder how the providence of God is supposed to give you courage to speak of God to those around you this week. You don't need to live in fear about what might happen to you or how they might make fun of you or how they might hurt you because if they attack you, God's providence is going to use it together for good. Fruit number three, God's providence produces wisdom and skill. Joseph is shown to be very wise in this story. Pharaoh tells him of these crazy dreams. We don't even need to go into the details of those dreams. Joseph is not only able to interpret them, but he's also given wisdom from God on how to act. He's consistent with Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. The, those who trust the Lord, even today, 
we as Christians, those who trust the Lord and his providence, we are given a perspective on life that is not always consumed by the immediate situation before us, but we are given a perspective on the whole of life. Through God's providence, we have the the big picture. And so like Joseph, God's providence can allow us to see beyond the circumstance and to make wise decisions, discerning decisions for our lives. Those who trust God's providence don't have to panic when things start going poorly. They don't have to be sucked into the drama of the moment. They can trust the Lord and prayerfully consider how to respond and follow God's word by making godly and biblical and wise choices for themselves and for their families. God's providence lifts our eyes out of our immediate circumstance and gives us wisdom to live from. Fruit number five, God's providence produces humility. We've seen Joseph grow in these 13 years, haven't we? Right in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph seemed a little bit too eager to brag about his coat of many colors and to, to flaunt the dreams that he had that seemed to be from the Lord, that he would rule over his brothers. He, he seemed a little too proud or haughty, but, but here we see him give all of the credit to God. And he doesn't even put himself forward at all. He might subtly by saying, you should search out a wise man and look, he's standing before you. But he doesn't promote himself needlessly. There's great humility here. You know, many people, when they, when they hear the church start talking about sovereignty and providence, they begin to think, what an arrogant doctrine to believe in. How can the people of God say that God in his sovereignty chose you above all these other people? But friends, that's the exact opposite effect that sovereignty and providence should have. We believe that, that God's providence humbles us before all men. There's nothing in us that draws God's attention to us. It's only his grace and mercy. And that awareness not only reorients us in how we think about God, it reorients us towards each other. We have nothing in ourselves to stand on, and so we can walk in humility together. Fruit number six, God's providence produces action and obedience. Again, so many people think that to believe in God's sovereignty To believe in his providence will lead to passive and indifferent Christianity. And it is a bit of a valid concern. Does God's providence lead to an impotent church? Can can we as Christians just let go and let God? I mean, if he is in control, do we really have to do anything? But that's not at all what we see in the life of Joseph or throughout all of Scripture. Knowledge of God's providence doesn't doesn't lead to to impotence. It leads to greater power. It leads to greater urgency. The sovereign God has, has providentially and sovereignly chosen to use your actions and my actions, your obedience and my obedience to accomplish his purposes in this world. And so we're able to, to labor with him. We're not called to be passive. We are called to Somehow, it's a mystery to us, but partner with him in his providence to accomplish his purposes. R. Kent Hughes says this. He says, so we see that the knowledge of what God is going to do does not produce passive resignation, but aggressive action. The knowledge of God's purpose is not the end of human planning and action, but the beginning of it. The fact that God has set the future is a mighty summons to action. Church, we can get involved in this glorious story that is being written. As Christians who believe in his providence, we should feel this summons to action in so many ways. Fruit number seven, God's providence produces a radical God-centeredness. I love the example of Joseph here. In the midst of being Egyptianized, 
even with a false identity forced upon him, he refuses to accept that worldly identity. As a slave, he, he can receive an Egyptian name. He can even work in that role. But when he is given the chance to name his two sons, their names are Hebrew names, and they are radically God-centered names. And this even after prospering and being in power for multiple years. Christian, what is your life being lived for? What does it center around? What is your family's life and purpose being lived for? Are you allowing the prosperity and the entertainment of this world to lull you into just passively accepting this worldly identity and being more about what you do out there than what you do for Christ in here? These are the fruits of God's providence in Joseph's lives and our lives as well. But friends, there's one more. There's one more fruit to consider. It's fruit number eight. God's providence produces confidence in God's plan. I love how Moses writes this chapter. I love how he highlights God's providence in these specific circumstances, but also how he points us as the reader forward towards God's greater plan. Look at Genesis 41, verse 49. It says, Joseph stored up grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Doesn't that remind you of Genesis 22 and Genesis 15 when God spoke of Abraham's descendants in those exact ways? It's just a whisper of God's future plan that even in these circumstances, God is doing something beyond the immediate. Look at Genesis 41 verses 56 to 57. It says, So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Listen, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. When it speaks of it as being over all the earth, it's speaking of the, the context of the very next chapter when Jacob and his sons are going to be forced to come to Egypt and to find provision through Joseph's wisdom. And so what is happening here is the, the, the writer of the story, Moses, is, is pointing us forward and, and causing us to consider what God is doing beyond the immediate. And what he is doing is preserving his people, preserving his plan, preserving his purposes. And we together know that those purposes will end with his own son on on the cross, dying for the sins of his people. What a glorious reality. What a glorious picture that God's providence is not just in these moments, but it is secure for all eternity, leading us towards Christ himself. Friends, as we consider the providence of God, as we consider our, our fear and anxieties in this world, as we consider our troubles and the lack of fruit in our lives, the question is, how can this function in our lives? We must believe. We must turn to. We must call ourselves to have faith in this truth, the providence of God. I don't know what fear you're dealing with. I don't know what uncertainty you are struggling with. 
I know that when we are in those moments, we all respond very differently. I think about moments when finances have been tight for us, and I think about how how quickly I, I go to my phone and I, I click on my bank app and just to check what is in there. And, and I can do it even 10 minutes later just to check it again. And I, in doing that, I, and I check it 10 minutes later. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to that thing for security. I'm reminding myself, oh, there is something there. Okay, I will be okay. Or there's not something there and I need, I need to work on that. But there's a comfort from just going back there. It's not, it's not a good comfort. That's not where our hope should be. Friends, God's providence is that for us. It is the confidence that we have and when we deal with the anxieties of this life, when the pressures of this week come upon you, we are called to go back to God's word and see that our account is filled with the promises of God over our lives and nothing can stop them. And he will be faithful. And church, God knows that we are a forgetful people and that we need to go back again and again. And so not only has he given us his word, which let me exhort you, go to his word today. Go to his word this week. Be a man or woman who in your forgetfulness always goes back to this place and says, I need to remember the promises and the providence of God. But God does more than that for us. He also gives us practices as a church family. He gives us communion. He gives us the Lord's Supper. And this wonderful, precious celebration is a reminder to us of his sovereign, providential love and care over this world.